Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could join us today. Imagine going to prison for something you did not do. In the early 1990s, the new power of DNA evidence shed light on people who had been locked away, some for life, for crimes they did not commit. They'd been found guilty based on wrong eyewitness identifications, misconduct by law enforcement, faulty forensic testimony, and and junk science, or they'd simply been coerced into a confession. No one knows for sure just how many people have been caught up in the legal system and found guilty of crimes they did not commit. But we do know that since 1989, more than 3,300 people have been cleared of the crimes for which they were convicted. That is according to the National Registry of Exonerations. So let's talk about why these wrongful convictions happen and the impact they have on people's lives. With me in the studio this morning, I have Jim Mayer, a managing attorney at the Great North Innocence Project. It's one of the organizations across the country that works to free people wrongfully convicted. It focuses on Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota. Jim also teaches courses on wrongful convictions at law schools here in the region. Good morning to you, Jim. Nice to meet you. Good morning, Angela. Pleasure to be here. Michael Hansen is joining us, too. He's on the phone. Michael is a tattoo artist and the owner of Kinship Collective Tattoo in Northfield, Minnesota. He spent nearly seven years in prison for a crime of which he was fully exonerated in 2011. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Hi, thank you for your time. Thanks for joining us. So, Jim, I want to start by just really learning more about the issue. You know, I think many people assume that the criminal justice system does its job, that the people who are sent to prison are guilty of the crimes that they've been convicted of. So how do we begin to to see a shift in this way of thinking? That How do we begin to more broadly recognize that innocent people end up in prison? Well, that's a great question. Our eyes really started to be opened uh, in the 1980s and even in the early 90s still with this the advent of a new uh, use of DNA technology. Mm-hmm. And finally, uh, in the 80s, we had the ability using this DNA technology to connect with some kind of scientific certainty crime scene evidence with a specific individual or source. We hadn't been able to do that previously. And so this was a tool that was used by law enforcement initially. Uh, So this new technology was very bad news if you'd committed a serious crime and left biological material at the crime scene. But some defense lawyers, people in the criminal defense community, started to realize that it was potentially good news if you'd been wrongfully convicted. And so defense lawyers started having the idea of using this technology to test the convictions that were out there. Recent convictions where maybe there still was crime scene evidence available for testing, we could test the system and see whether these people had been appropriately convicted. And I guess in some cases, too, uh, for an investigator, maybe DNA was uh, discovered connected to somebody else, and and then it led to a path of investigating someone else for a crime. That's absolutely right. There are really two sides to the innocence movement, you might say. One is we're trying to exonerate the people who've committed, who've been wrongfully convicted of crimes and sentenced to prison. And the other side is oftentimes this leads to uh, actually apprehending the actual perpetrator of the crime. So I indicated it's not completely clear the numbers that we're talking about here. But um, is there any way to know really how many people uh, who have been convicted and in prison for a crime are actually innocent? 
We have some idea. And one, you know, two things came out of the DNA technology and its use by defense lawyers. One, it was important because we were finding people who were innocent, who were in prison, and we were able to return those people to their families and communities. Uh, but the second reason it was important, as you suggest, is that it gave us uh, some information. It gave us certainty that the system does get it wrong, that the system does get it wrong a non-trivial number of times. Most of the studies that have been attempted in this area have put the percentage somewhere as low as 2%, as high as maybe 6 or 7% of convictions actually being convictions of innocent people. And the, the percentages may not seem extremely high, but when you consider the fact that at any given moment in the U.S., we've got over 2.2 million people behind bars, um, you realize that we're talking about a lot of unnecessary human suffering, not only the people who are in prison, but those people's families and those people's communities. Right. This is a much broader reach. Right. Think about the impact. And again, looking back to the early 90s and 80s, um, you know, DNA matches showing that some people have been wrongly convicted. Um, as an attorney, you know, what do you think about that in terms of like the the lessons that were learned from those ver- very early cases um, and what went wrong? Uh, I think I think rape cases stand out in my mind as something that that we heard a lot about. Well, the nice thing about having this uh, sort of database of wrongful convictions is that we can really study them, look for red flags, look for what are the common contributing factors that we see in cases of wrongful convictions that were later overturned by DNA. One of the big factors is faulty eyewitness identifications. And Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, a lot of the early DNA exonerations were stranger rape cases where potentially the only evidence against the defendant was an identification from the witness made under very stressful circumstances, someone they've never seen before, oftentimes across racial identification, which are notoriously unreliable. So that allowed us to look at eyewitness identification. What are the problems with that? Um, It's clearly not as accurate as lay people think it is. And the social science in that area has advanced quite a bit, such that we've been able to reform the system and put in place procedures that minimizes the risk of bad eyewitness identifications. Yeah, if I think about, you know, news coverage of, of some, you know, trials years ago, uh, just remembering like people making statements like, I, I will never forget that face, right? Which, you know, understanding that this is a horribly stressful situation, that there could still be a misidentification. That's right. And the person who makes that statement really believes Means it in that. good faith. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. And so this is, uh, the Innocence Project is actually, it's it's national, but but it's not all connected. Like uh, the original Innocence Project started in, in New York. Is that right? Right. It started in New York uh, by Barry Sheck and Peter Newfeld. But since then, it has expanded and new organizations have propped up all around the country and even internationally. Um, mm. So we're all independently funded, independently run. Um, but we do communicate with each other. We share information. We share expertise. We get together for conferences to make sure everyone's up to date on the latest, you know, helpful information, technology, everything else. Um, so Great North Innocence Project is one of those many organizations. And we're based in Minnesota and we serve Minnesota, North Dakota and also South Dakota. And how and when did the, the regional, the, the Great North Innocence Project start? How many years ago? We've been up and running about two decades now, just over two decades. Right. And And how do people even find out about you that you exist? Well, we try to do outreach in the community uh, to talking to school groups, church groups, groups of lawyers, groups of judges, and specifically outreach towards our target audience, which is prisoners, our potential clients 
are people who are sitting in prison. So we will go out to prisons in Bismarck, North Dakota, for example, or Stillwater or other prisons and talk to people about our services, make sure they know how to reach us, how to write to us, how to apply for help. And what kinds of cases uh, do you take on? Just because of the nature of what we do, most of our cases are very serious crimes. We don't spend as much time on misdemeanor crimes, even though I'm sure people often will be convicted of a misdemeanor when they're mm-hmm. innocent, most often probably because they plead guilty, because they can't deal with the hassle and the stress and the, the risk of having some time away from their job or their family. Uh, but we tend to focus on the more serious crimes where people are looking at long prison sentences, because that's where we feel like we can make the most impact. So an example, murder? Murder, for example, very commonly we'll take on murder and manslaughter cases. Yeah, that would probably be the most common type of case we would take. What about drug charges? We've got one uh, client named Ronnie Cooper who was convicted of federal drug conspiracy wrongfully, who we uh, managed to get the release of about three years ago. So we do have uh, one, one at least drug conspiracy conviction that we've successfully overturned. Uh, felony child neglect? Also on the list? Also on the list. We just had a case in North Dakota, as a matter of fact, just two days ago. uh, We successfully uh, exonerated a North Dakota woman who was convicted originally of felony child neglect. And how do you know if someone really is innocent? I imagine a lot of people who are guilty of their crimes will say that they didn't do it. So what? how do you all measure or decide this is a case we are going to take? We believe this person. Well, that's not always easy to do. We get hundreds of people reaching out to us every year. Um, And a lot of these people um, look guilty when you first look at their file. And of course they do, because somehow they got convicted by a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. So there must be some things that make it look as though that person is guilty. Um, But we look at every new application uh, in terms of giving total benefit of the doubt to the person applying for our services, because that's what they deserve um, when they apply to us. So we will take a fresh look at the case. We will assume that everything they are saying is true, and we will start to investigate it and check it out. We do work with a network of uh, law students who are extremely helpful to us in screening cases, as well as some volunteer lawyers. And through that process, we kind of come up with cases that have the most promise, Maybe there's some new evidence that's never been presented in court before that the person has identified that we can pursue and possibly use to get relief for them in court. If after a full investigation, we believe, one, that the person is actually innocent, and two, there is some new evidence that we think we can bring into court to successfully get that conviction vacated, um, then we will take the case on and bring it into litigation. And I imagine, too, over time, you see patterns. You know, are there some common problems that show up again and again, and, and how a case is investigated or how it was tried that can be an indicator like this could be a wrongful conviction here? Right. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning, when we started to have the exonerations based on DNA, we could look at some of those wrongful convictions and and see what the common causes were. So that does give us red flags that we look for. Mm -hmm. There are certain eyewitness identification procedures that are overly suggestive that we think could be a problem in a conviction. Use of jailhouse informants is often a red flag where the prosecution, um, not having much physical evidence maybe against the defendant, will bring in someone who served some time with the defendant waiting for trial. And that person, in exchange, usually for some consideration on whatever charges they might be facing, will claim that the defendant confessed to them uh, out of the blue. That's another thing we look for. Uh, We're always concerned about bad forensic science making its way into the courtroom. That's a huge issue for us. So 
that's something we're looking for. Potential for some kind of official misconduct. Maybe there's evidence that is, tends to show that the person is innocent, that was withheld by the prosecution and not turned over. Um, another very common cause of wrongful convictions is simply bad defense lawyering. You know, the way our system works, everyone has a role to play in this adversarial system. The judge, the prosecutor, the defense lawyer, the jury. And if any one of those players does not play his or her part appropriately, the result could be a bad conviction. Wow. And um, what is, you know, you referenced this, uh, sometimes people are co- co- coerced into a confession. Um, why would someone be coerced into a confession? What have you seen? Well, there are certain factors uh, that come into play in terms of false confessions. First of all, false confessions uh, exist in more than 10% of the documented wrongful convictions, with, which blows some people's mind. Most people intuitively don't think that anyone would ever confess to a serious crime if they didn't actually commit it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we know that there are ways that that happened. A lot of it depends on the person being interrogated. Are they young? If you're a young person, you're far more likely to falsely confess. Is there some mood disorder, some psychological disorder that person has that makes them more vulnerable, more suggestible? Um, and then you've got the conduct of the people doing the investigation. You know, in the old days, there was simple physical compulsion there was torture. There was, uh, you know, use of physical violence to extract a confession. That's largely been replaced by psychological pressures, mm-hmm. where police who are good at this, uh, good at extracting confessions, they will lie to the person being interrogated. We've got your DNA at the crime scene. We know you'll be convicted. That It'll happens. Be, yeah, that absolutely happens, and it's legal in every state. Police are allowed to lie to a person during an interrogation, and that is a, you know, a big cause of false confessions. We're talking about serving time in prison, but being innocent. Have you or someone you know ever been wrongfully convicted and then exonerated of a crime? Or do you have a question about how wrongful convictions happen or about the appeals process? Uh, You can call us as we talk with uh, guests from the Great North Innocence Project. The phone lines are open. Call us at 651-227-6000. Or you can call us at 800-242-2828. I want to take some time to talk with our second guest uh, and talk about a case that the Great North Innocence Project worked on here in Minnesota. Uh, Michael is on the phone. And Michael, as I mentioned, you were released in 2011 after spending seven years in prison. You'd been convicted of second-degree murder in the death of your three-month-old daughter. Uh, Her name was Avriana. Am I saying her name right, Avriana? Yes. Yeah. And and then you were exonerated. You were cleared of any wrongdoing. And Michael, I want to make sure people understand how something like this can happen. Um, back in 2004, you were in Alexandria, Minnesota. You and your girlfriend were not living together at the time, but you had two daughters. Avriana uh, was the younger one. And you woke up one morning to experience um, one of the worst things I think that that can happen to any new parent. You found her on her stomach and she was unresponsive. Uh, take us back to to that day, and, and what did you do? Um, well, uh, definitely the most horrible day of my life. Um, you know, it's just, uh, I, it's hard to put into words, I guess. Um, I'm sure. You know, I woke up with her unresponsive, and uh, my, uh, my buddy called, my buddy's girlfriend called for an ambulance, and... Uh, I was trying to resuscitate her and, you know, it's just, it's just, uh, it's crazy. It's crazy to go through something like that. And then, uh, you know, and then, uh, realize that you're being looked at and, 
mm-hmm. you know, wrongfully accused. And yeah, it's a, it's a pretty painful situation. So, Michael, there was a, an autopsy because uh, Ariana, you know, her death was not expected. Uh, she was a healthy baby. It was discovered that she had a skull fracture. And that really became a key part of your trial. Tell us what uh, the prosecutors, what the investigators say caused the fracture. What was brought up in court? Well, um, about five days prior um, to Ariana passing away, she had fallen out of a cart um, at Walmart. And uh, it was on video and everything. Um, so, you know, the, they they had the video and, and all that stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, was it, what was your question again? Well, I, I wanted to know, like, what was the injury that uh, the medical examiner decided caused uh, our, Adriana's death? It was a skull fracture that they said that. No, it, no, it wasn't a skull fracture. Okay. She passed away due to positional asphyxia. Okay. So that laying on her stomach. What happened was they they presented a medical examiner to testify against Mike, who testified incorrectly mm. um, that this skull fracture was what this case was all about. That in, you know that this was recent. That she would have declined immediately after the skull fracture, and that the skull fracture was the cause of death. This, even though there was no brain injury whatsoever, and even though the skull fracture was actually healing, so we knew that it was an older injury. Um, but a medical examiner was allowed to testify that the skull fracture actually was the cause of death, and since Mike was the one who was caring for her uh, at the time that she collapsed, that it must have been Mike, unless he could explain what happened. Mm. And so, Michael, what was it like uh, during the trial as you're hearing, um, or actually even before that? Because at some point you you realized that the police suspected you of hurting uh, Avriana. How did you begin to realize that? Uh, well, they kept asking us to come in, and um, me and my buddy and his girlfriend and Avriana's mom, um, they kept asking us to come in and uh, talk to them, and, and we would. And eventually, my buddy noticed that one of the investigators was following him to work. And so he got upset about that and didn't want to go in and talk to him anymore. And I had to beg him to go in and talk to him because, you know, they weren't telling me anything. Um, You know, at that point, I didn't even know my daughter had a skull fracture. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so Jim, what was, so why was Michael exonerated? What was the reason that that after he served time in prison that he was then cleared of any wrongdoing? There were really two reasons why uh, Michael was ultimately ultimately exonerated. We went into court. We had a a petition for post-conviction relief, which is sort of the procedural name for what we do after there's been a conviction and we're trying to get it set aside. Um, One of the reasons is because the judge found, after hearing from additional medical experts, that the medical examiner who testified against Michael and who had said that the skull fracture was the cause of death actually testified falsely uh, Mm -hmm. because the medical evidence that we presented overwhelmingly showed that there was no brain injury to the child. The skull fracture had nothing to do with her death. Uh, that skull fracture was healing, um, and the evidence at this hearing was that you know skull fractures actually aren't that uncommon, um, and they often occur to infants or young children with no real serious symptoms. They just heal, and everyone moves on with their life. So this emphasis at Michael's trial about the skull fracture was completely wrong. The court also found that there was new evidence in terms of our understanding 
about positional asphyxiation that mm-hmm. weren't known back at the time that justified reopening this case. Once the conviction was set aside, the prosecution realized that they had no case against Mike, that he was innocent, and it was it was dismissed at that point. So the, the true cause of death was the asphyxia? Most likely, yes, but it certainly wasn't a blow to the head. Okay. Um, Michael, again, you're, at the time, you're, you're grieving the loss of your daughter, and then this is happening to you. Um, tell me, you know, what was... That, that moment that the jury found you guilty, what was that like for you to hear that verdict? Uh, well, I always refer to, I mean, it, like, I, you know, this is, it's hard to put a lot of these things into words. Um, I, you would think that, you know, you wrongfully are getting found guilty and, you know, you, you break down in some type of way. And I'm sorry, I'm sure some people do. And I guess I, you know, I was just in the clouds. I, I couldn't believe it because um, nobody thought I was going to get found guilty. So it was, I just, it's it's pretty, you know, sometimes growing up or something, you might get accused of something you didn't do and it upsets you and whatever. And But this is, this was, you know, it's just different. And uh, I would have to say, you know, I was really just kind of in the clouds and in an unbelievable state of mind. I just couldn't believe that. <laughs> that that was what was happening. I, because you, I, I put my faith in the system and, uh, you know, that's, that's what happened. And I just, at that moment, I, I just couldn't believe what was happening. And I thought, you know, there's, you just think someone's going to step up and do something. Someone's going to stand up and, and yell something, you know? And, um, because you yeah, knew you would so, never hurt your daughter. Like that was just yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely not. There's, there's no one who could ever say that. I have five kids and, um, they're my everything, you know, so I don't, you know, it's just, it's hard. How did you hear about the Innocence Project, Michael? Um, I was in St. Cloud Prison and, uh, you know, they drop their email off to you every day and um, there just happened to be a pamphlet in there and I read it and, you know, just gave it a shot and just hoped that, you know, someone would do something. So I, I wrote them and, um, told him my story and uh, you know they get a lot of like he was saying like Jim was saying they get they get a lot of mail and a lot of people saying that they're not guilty and and people that need help and I just uh I did everything I could I couldn't let my daughter's name be remembered that way she wasn't from an abusive family she you know and uh that's not how she passed away and I just had to keep going and and do something and and I just I just couldn't give up if even if it was the end of my life I she was only here for three and a half months you know so I just really didn't want her to be remembered that way and yeah so you were exonerated do you remember that feeling when you that 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 moment when when you heard that that you had been cleared of any wrongdoing and that that you were not responsible for your baby's death um yeah, well, yeah, obviously I was ecstatic, but, you know, the court's a very powerful system, you know, so I would I would be lying if I said I wasn't a little worried, like, well, what are they going to do now? Like, it's it, it, it always seemed, when it came to my case, it always seemed like the prosecutor was trying harder because it was election year for him that year and, you know, things like that. So it's just, it's hard when you put your, your uh, faith in the system and, and it lets you down like that. 
The system is never going to be perfect, but we should continue to try to make it perfect. We're dealing with people's lives here. And um, yeah, we're not just pieces of paper that get filed in a drawer, you know, so. Michael, thank you for for explaining this to us and telling your story, sharing it with us. Jim, what do you make of this case? Well, I guess, first of all, I I want to thank Mike for being here with us and telling his story. You know, we we ask our clients to Mm -hmm. do some outreach and tell their stories because we think it's important to raise awareness about the issues. But we have to recognize that every time we ask someone like Mike to tell his story, it takes something out of him. Um, Stories like Mike's begin with an unspeakable tragedy, in this case, the loss of one of his children, and then it's compounded Mm -hmm. uh, by the trauma of the wrongful accusation and then imprisonment. I mean, prison is traumatic on its own, even if you're fully guilty of the crime you're serving a sentence for. But there's a special flavor of trauma uh, when you're serving a sentence in prison for a crime you didn't commit. So I do want to, you know, first of all, just thank Mike for coming out here. Um, Mike's case raises a couple of issues in terms of the issues that we care about. Uh, One was the bad forensic testimony, um, and they didn't have appropriate experts on the defense side in his trial to really counter that testimony to make sure the jury got an accurate picture of the medical evidence. The state also used uh, an incentivized witness, a jailhouse informant, against Mike to try to make the case stick. Um, And so those are things that we care about. And I will say that the medical examiner who testified and was found to have testified falsely in Mike's case was the same medical examiner who testified in the case of two other clients of ours whom we've gotten released from prison. So that's three out of 10 people that our organization has gotten released from prison. All were the victims of testimony from the same medical examiner. Mm-hmm. And his, his name is Michael McGee. He was the Ramsey County medical examiner for many years, um, but also um, someone that you have tied to other cases where you have exonerated That's right. And there's an effort that's underway appropriately to audit and review uh, convictions that were based largely on this person's testimony. Michael, what can you tell us about your time in prison? Um, Well, and also I would like to add that this Michael McGee, like when I went to trial, he hadn't, these these experts are supposed supposed to go to classes every year to stay up to date on things, you know, just like the, you know, Jim just said, the Innocence Project, they, they get together, they discuss things that stay up on things and whatnot, and people in the medical field have to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. This guy, Michael McGee, hadn't been to a class in over 20 years. You know, he hadn't been updated in 20 years, and this is someone that the state works with and has 14 different contracts. He's got 14 different contracts to do his work through, you know, with the state, and so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's it's a, a I'm sorry, it's, it's a pretty deep subject for it me, is. but... Um, it's your life, yeah, I understand. What was your, I was, what was asking you about your time in prison. What was that like? Well, I mean, just to be blunt, it was, I'm, I, I was thought I could be killed on a daily basis. When you go to prison, being accused of something like that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's it's not a, it's not a fun time. You know, I had the the head of the native mob come to me the second day and tell me that as soon as I come out of my cell, he's going to kill me. Um, <laughs> I, I went through lots of scenarios like that. And, uh, it's, it's a whole different world in there. And, and people don't, people don't understand that. People don't understand how this 
see this type of things can happen. You know, people think when someone's in prison, they're that's it. They they were meant to be there. Whatever they mm-hmm. did, they messed up, and they're they're supposed to be there. And, and uh, I'd have to say the majority of it is like that. But it's like I said, the system isn't perfect, but we need to continue to try to make it perfect. It'll never be perfect. Uh, there's way too many variables there. You know, you got judges sitting on their bench all day long. You know, it's just like you're just you're just a piece of paper. So, well, Michael, we're going to take a, a break here uh, as we continue to talk about serving time in prison, but being innocent. All right, let's go to the phone lines in Wisconsin. We have Martha on the line. Martha calling in. Martha, what questions do you have? Hey, Angela, thank mm-hmm. you so much for this. This um, sparks my question through a friend in Vermont who was. Uh, helped by the Innocence Project, I, I discovered or found out how bad it appears the criminal justice system is spiked in favor of the prosecution, even from things just the way the courtroom itself is set up and the visuals and the system, the way it, it runs. And I'm wondering, um, Michael's story really is parallel to my friend in Vermont who was released through the Innocence Project. Could your guest speak to how um, the prosecution has an advantage going into these um, court settings and how much socioeconomic and um, race and things like that affect this already existing advantage the prosecution has. Mm. All right. That's Martha in Wisconsin asking about uh, are there certain communities that are just overrepresented, I guess, in prisons and, and, and why does that come to be? Well, starting with that part of the question, um, we do know that even though already um, people of color are overrepresented in our prison population and are more likely to have contact with law enforcement, even if you control for that, um, they're also overly represented in the community of exonerees and of people who have been wrongfully convicted. Um, African-Americans, for example, less than 20% of the population of the United States, they represent about half of the documented wrongful convictions in this country, about 47%. According to a recent study by the University of Michigan, an African-American person is three times more likely than a white person to be wrongfully convicted of a sex assault, seven times more likely to be wrongfully convicted of murder, and 12 times more likely to be wrongfully convicted of a drug crime. And we also know that on average, uh, African-Americans spend more time in prison before they are exonerated. So another way in which the outcomes are disparate. Um, In terms of the unlevel playing field at trial, one of the big issues that we are concerned about is access to expert witnesses. Um, That was an issue in Mike's case, as you heard. That's one area in which the prosecution often has a distinct advantage over the defense, who essentially, whether, you know, unless the defendant is very wealthy, um, they're essentially in in the position of begging the court for funding to pay for expert witnesses, and they don't always get that funding. Uh, let's take another phone call. Uh, this is uh, coming from Alexandria. Uh, Lee is calling in from Alexandria. Good morning, Lee. What questions uh, do you have about wrongful convictions? Hello. Hi. Um, I just wanted to let Michael know I feel for him so much because I have a friend who went through the same thing. Um, my friend, this is out in Portland, Oregon. And uh, she and her husband were wrongfully uh, accused of shaking baby syndrome. Um, I'm not going to tell you all the details. She ended up being uh, 
not being um, actually convicted of it, because fortunately, um, her husband is actually a prosecuting attorney, and they're fairly well-to-do, so they could afford the legal representation. But since that time, um, she has worked with the Innocence Project because there are a lot of people who have been wrongfully convicted under shaken baby syndrome. And there was a particular doctor out in that area that had been referring a lot of people that he had seen for this. And it turns out there is um, conditions in which it looks like shaken baby syndrome, and it's really not. It's an actual disease that the child has. But the other thing I wanted to mention is the fact that there is actually out there a podcast, and there was um, a documentary made about this situation. It's called Do No Harm, and it's about people being falsely accused of shaken baby syndrome. And just one other comment is that in that situation, when you're talking about why people confess, There are people that have been told, okay, you either confess to this or you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison and never get to see, or you're going to get convicted and never get to see your kids again. So they go for a shorter term, you know, and they say that they did it because they're told, well, you can't fight this. You're going to get convicted. So they bargain out for a shorter term. So at least they're not going to, you know, spend their Mm -hmm. entire children's lives in prison. It'll be a shorter term. All right. That's Lee and Alexandria. Thank you, Lee. And Michael, uh, Lee is very sympathetic uh, to what you went through. She has a friend who went through something similar. Michael, have you met other people uh, during the last few years, um, other dads who maybe have have had a a similar situation? Uh, No, no, I haven't. Um, I mean, I've definitely met other wrongfully incarcerated people. and each each case is unique. You know, that's that's another thing too is uh you know, everybody's their own entity and but right. you know, when once you get into court everybody gets treated the same and uh I think it's unfortunate because um everybody's story is different, everybody's situations are different too, so Oh, I want to talk about your life today. Uh, you are a tattoo artist. I said in the introduction, tattoo art has been a part of your life since you were young, and you now run your own tattoo studio there in Northfield called Kinship Tattoo. Um, what has that experience been like for you, and 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 what do you want people to know about you know the work you're doing now? Um, well, uh, Northfield's great. Um, if you never visited Northfield, you have to. It's a great place, and the community is amazing. Um, they've really uh, taken me in with open arms, and uh, yeah, you know, um, you know, sometimes people come to me for tattoos. Um, other people who have like lost a child and whatnot, and um, they hear about me and they say, "Yeah, I want that guy to tattoo me." He's kind of, you know, feels my pain a bit, and um, but so yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, it's it's been great. Northfield's been great to me. You have a tattoo to remember your daughter, Ariana. Yeah, I wouldn't say a tattoo. It's more of a sleeve in my whole chest and <laughs> uh yeah, it's just uh um you know, like in Japan and Asian culture on each side of the door when you would you know, in some places you walk up to the door and there's uh those those lioness statues on each side of the door. Um they're they're called foo dogs or, or um, they're also called shishi. 
Um, one protects the dwelling, one protects the people inside. So I have a, a whole theme of that type of thing happening. Yeah, but it's a it's a very large project. <laughs> Jim, tell us how people find out uh, or get in contact with the Great North Innocence Project. I mean, what's the process to get a case reviewed by your team? Well, it starts by uh, a very in a very old fashioned way. People write us a letter to explain uh, what happened to them. If based on that letter and looking into the case, they meet our initial intake criteria, we will write back. We will send an application that we've developed. Uh, in order to get information about their conviction and what other evidence might be out there that we should pursue. From there, we work with law students and volunteers to screen and investigate uh, the case. So write to us. You can go to our website at greatnorthinnocenceproject.org to find our address, to get to subscribe to our newsletter, to stay up to date on the things that we do and volunteer opportunities and, and everything else. We also have uh, our annual fundraiser on October 25th. That's Wednesday of this week. There are still a few tickets left for that. If you go to our website. I have website, a ticket there. I'll be there. Excellent. I'll be there. We're glad you're going to be there. Um, you can get tickets on our website at greatnorthinnocenceproject.org. There are still a few left. And you can also uh, register to attend virtually, which is free. So check that out. And on a personal note, uh, in just our last 30 seconds, why are you draw- drawn to this work? Because I know as an attorney, you can specialize in different things. Why this for you? For me, this started a long time ago when I was in private practice uh, handling business disputes. I had the opportunity to work as a volunteer uh, for a case on behalf of a death row inmate. Um, And after spending uh, over seven years working on that case and ultimately seeing that capital conviction get overturned, uh, I saw uh, that there are serious flaws in the system and that working to address those flaws is the most meaningful thing you can possibly do as a lawyer. All right. Well, thank you for your time today uh, explaining the Great North Innocence Project to us. We've been talking to Jim Mayer, uh, managing attorney there at the Great North Innocence Project, again, an organization that works to free people wrongfully convicted of crimes and to work for criminal justice reform here in Minnesota, North Dakota and South Dakota. And again, special thanks to our other guests, Michael Hansen, a tattoo artist there and the owner of Kinship Collective Tattoo in Northville. He spent nearly seven years in prison for a crime that he was later fully exonerated of in 20. 2011. Thank you, Michael, for telling your story. I appreciate hearing uh, from both of you today. And thanks to our listeners as well. This conversation was produced by Maya Beckstrom. Be safe, everybody. We'll talk again tomorrow morning at nine. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.